Now we're starting this second book of Samuel. We've already looked at the book of 1 Samuel. And there is a tradition has it that Samuel wrote or penned this book, meaning 1 Samuel. But you remember in the 25th chapter of 1 Samuel that Samuel died. He passed away. So whoever it was that picked up the mantle after him and continued the book, because after he dies, we finally, you know, we hear about Saul, um, you know, consulting the medium and, and certainly David's, uh, some of David's things with the uh, Philistines. And so somebody had to pick up the, the torch after that and, 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 write, and run with it. And we, we get a hint of who that might be in First Chronicles um, you might want to just at the top of your Bible in in First Samuel or Second Samuel, you might want to just write this, because you know after Samuel died, who who penned this? And so we got a clue in First Chronicles chapter twenty nine, verse twenty nine. First Chronicles twenty nine, verse twenty nine. Let me read uh, it to you. It says, uh, "Let me back up to verse twenty six. Says David, the son of Jesse, reigned over all Israel, and he reigned." And the period that he reigned over Israel was 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron, and 33 years he reigned in Jerusalem. So he died in a good old age, full of days and riches and honor. And Solomon, his son, reigned in his place. And then in verse 29 it says, Now the acts of King David, first and last, indeed they are written in the book of Samuel, the seer, in the book of Nathan, the prophet, and in the book of Gad, the seer, with all his reign and his might and the events that happened to him to Israel and to all the kingdoms of the lands. So we believe that probably one of these gentlemen either continued, there may be a, uh, somebody else who continued, uh, but either way, uh, Samuel passes from the scene and we get into this, uh, this wonderful book. Uh, between First and Second Samuel, between those two books, it really spans a history of about 135 years, from the from the very birth of of Samuel, which was 1105 B.C., to David's death, which was around 971 B.C. So it spans about 135 years. This book of Second Samuel really speaks concerning David's life, because remember, First Samuel talked really about Samuel. And then uh, Saul, the Israel's first king, and then David was kind of like dovetailing, um, you know, Saul's reign. And then finally, Saul passes from the scene in chapter 31 of the last chapter we looked at in 1 Samuel. And now David, this whole entire chapter, or book, excuse me, is really devoted to David's beginnings and all the things that he went through. And it's going to be a remarkable study. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. The book begins with the death of Saul and ends with the death of David. Because remember, uh, last week when we finished up 1 Samuel chapter 31, the very last chapter, we saw Saul's death and his sons. And so the second book opens up with the death of Saul. And finally, it ends with the death of of, of David himself. But in this book, we're going to see a number of things. First off, we're going to see David becoming king first over Judah in Hebron, where he reigned for seven and a half years. And then ultimately, he's going to reign all over Israel, the entire uh, country. We're going to see David capturing Zion or the Canaanite city of Jabus, which is uh, what we would call uh, Jerusalem today. It was called Jabus before. 
And we know that Joab, his, uh, his uh, nephew, actually conquered that city and uh, got it for David. We're going to see David's, uh, or God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. We're going to see many wars with surrounding neighbors and David's victories that he had uh, accomplished during that time. We're also going to see one of David's low points in chapter 11 and 12 where we see him uh, having an affair with Bathsheba and ultimately killing her husband Uriah to cover up the baby that was in her womb. And this is certainly uh, one of those points in the book of 2 Samuel that uh, many of us would like to forget, and I'm sure David would like to forget, but it's a very real uh, thing that happened in his life. So we'll look at that. We'll also see the birth of Solomon taking place in this chapter. And then David's family woes and the treachery of his son Absalom as he seeks to overthrow his father's kingdom. We'll see David leaving Jerusalem as Absalom is coming into Jerusalem. And ultimately, we'll see the death of Absalom and the restoring of the kingdom to David. And then finally, the book ends with David making some really rash uh, things by calling a census. Uh, that was um, something he did out of pride and self-centeredness. And a plague broke out. And we'll read that as well. But, you know, most people think that the, the second book of Samuel is really all about David and his failures, because that, that seems to be the hinging point in the, in the book. But the, the real themes in this book are really national unity and restoration. Remember when Saul was king, there was really no unity. Everything was kind of disjointed. And Saul, because of his rebellion, he wasn't a very good king. And so there's really nothing happening to really caused the nation to come together in a real unified force, in a unified way. And David is going to bring that about. And it's also, it speaks of David's uh, restoration after his sin, that even though he had sinned, and it's a sin that maybe many of us haven't committed and maybe never will, but David, we know, is in heaven. And how can we know that? Because David repented of his sin. And there's the difference between him and Saul. Remember, Saul's life was really marked by rebellion. But David, when he made the mistake, when he sinned, he eventually, he owned, he owned it. He owned up to it, and God forgave him. And there's the difference between a man of God and a man who is not of God. A man of God will fall seven times and ask God to forgive him and get back up again. And that's what God wants us to do. He doesn't want us to stay in the pit. And so that's what David did, and that's why God could call David a man after his own heart. That's why he was called the sweet psalmist of Israel, because he was a, he was a man who loved the Lord, and he had his failings, as, as we all do. We all have failings. Anybody here not have a failing? Raise your hand so we can put candles next to you, and we'll all put a little, put a little piece of carpet next in front of you, and we'll all kneel before you. No, there's nobody, right? We've all... Sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the truth. And we're also going to, one of the themes in this is the restoration of the throne uh, after Absalom had attempted the coup on David's life and the kingdom. And so it's really not only about David, but it's really about the country. It's about the nation of Israel. God's restoring and, and unifying power through David in spite of his strengths, in spite of his weaknesses, 
God shows his hand to be strong through this man. And in fact, when he inherits the kingdom from Saul, the country is a tattered mess and disjointed. But when he, when he finally leaves this earth and goes to glory, Israel is going to be unified and it's going to be a great empire. And the army and everything, the, 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 the structure of the worship in the, in, the, in the house of God, all of those things are going to be solid and, and, and in order. And David was the one to do that. And, that. and God knew that. God was going to accomplish that to David. He was a faithful man. In fact, all other kings, if you'll notice as you read through First and Second Kings, especially re, re, um, comparing them to, um, well, they would compare all the kings to David. You know, the king was a good king, and like, like his father David. Or they would say that this king wasn't like his father David, which means he, was, he wasn't a faithful king. But the, 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 the foundation, the, the benchmark, if you will, was David. Because he was one of Israel's greatest king. And under him, the Lord did so many wonderful things. And so this first chapter is really, really a transitional chapter because we don't see him getting anointed uh, finally to be king. At, in the, and when we get to chapter 2, it's been some close to 15 years since the time that Samuel had anointed him. And so he first reigns over Hebron, but chapter 1 of, the, of this book is going to be really a transition period. We're going to see that. And so have you ever been through, you know, most of us have been through transitions in our life. We've, you know, maybe it's been a, an end of an era for you. Um, maybe an end of a long-standing job that you've had. Maybe it's, it's the end of, hopefully not, but maybe the end of a marriage there's some watershed moment in your life where there is an end to something, and then there's the beginning of something else. And sometimes in between the, the end of something and the beginning of something else, there's this intermediate period that you seem kind of like in limbo, where you're just kind of questioning things. You don't really know where you fit in, what's going on with your life. Have you ever been there? I've been there, and I imagine that we've all been there at different times, or, and we'll be there again. Times when one era, something in our life ends and something begins, and then there's a period where we're just unsure about what the Lord is doing. And David, we saw that when, if you remember in the last book, we saw at the very end that while the Israelites were fighting up in Aphek in the north, while the Israelites were fighting the Philistines, David, remember, was booted out by the Philistine king of Gath, Achish. He told him to go back down to Ziklag because the lords of the Philistines didn't want David and his 600 men going to war with, against his own people. Even though Achish trusted him for some reason, the other lord said, you know what, we don't trust this guy. We're going to get in battle and he's going to turn against us and he will ingratiate himself to the king again. And so they kicked him out. So he went further. He went 80 miles down south to the place where Achish gave him, the, the town of Ziklag. And then he gets back there, and you remember that the Amalekites had come, had come up from the south of Judah and raided Ziklag, and not only took David and his wife and his whole family captive, but also all the other men, their women, their children, everything, all their livestock, basically just took everything away. And David and them get there, and they realize that everything is gone. Everything is gone. And then 
They go and they attack the Amalekites down in the south, and they recover every single thing, all the people. And he brought back all the livestock. They come back into Ziklag, and they were there for about three days. And then a young man comes, and, we're, and this is where we're going to pick up right now. And so let's just read it. We're going to look at the first 16 verses, and then we're going to go back and look at it. So it says that, Now it came to pass, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag, notice, on the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head, and so it was when he came to David that he fell on the ground and he prostrated himself. And David said to him, Where have you come from? And so he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And then David said to him, How did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. And so David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? And then the young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called out to me, and I said, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered, I said, I am an Amalekite. And he said to him again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and I killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and he tore them and, he did, and, and so did all the men who were with him. And notice they mourned and wept and they fasted until evening for Saul, for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel. Because they had fallen by the sword. And then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. And so David said to him, How was it you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. And so David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And the rest of the chapter is really a lament or an elegy, if you will, of Jonathan and Saul. And we're going to look at that uh, as well tonight. But let's go back to verse 1 here. It says, Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag. Now remember, David uh, went after the Amalekites because they had just burned their town, Ziklag. So David went down and recovered everything. That's recorded for us in chapter 30 of of 1 Samuel. So while David was battling and overcoming the Amalekites, the Israelites under Saul, they were being beaten badly by the Philistines up north. So these two battles are going on concurrently while Saul and the um, Israelites are battling against the Philistines up north. David is down here taking care of business. And they didn't have Twitter, and they didn't have messages, and they didn't have texting back then. And it took an awful long time for, for word to get around. It took some time because, the, you know, it was only by word of mouth. And so David, you know, didn't know what was happening up north. He knew that the battle was going on, but he certainly had no idea. He thought that 
you know, maybe Saul and his men were, were doing a really great job. But we know that Saul and his sons, they die on Mount Gilboa. His sons were Jonathan, who we know was David's best friend. There was Abinadab and Mekishua. And the last son of Saul is not mentioned going to battle. His name was Ishbosheth, and his name literally means man of shame. And I almost wonder, it's kind of interesting that he wasn't in the battle with his brothers. Why wasn't he defending his father? Maybe he was too young. We really don't know why he wasn't there. But he wasn't there. But this last son, Ishbosheth, was still alive. And notice in verse 2, it says, On the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. That's the way they would show, as you know, uh, uh, remorse or heartache. The Jews and even uh, other cultures, they would tear their clothes or they would throw dust on their heads. They would look disheveled. They would do that as a, as a means of showing that they're mourning. And so on the third day, while David and his men are back in Ziklag, this man comes. And so it was when he came to David that he fell ground, on the ground and prostrated himself. And I think that, you know, when you when underline the third day, and not to make a big deal out of this, but whenever you see the third day in Scripture, sometimes you see some, something significant. What else happened on the third day that was so significant? <laughs> we know that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. And I find it interesting that on the third day, as David was delivered, if you will, from his running from Saul for his life, as he was delivered from death, in a sense, on the third day, you know, a couple thousand years down the road, or uh, actually a thousand or so years, uh, a, th a thousand and some odd years later, who would rise on the third day? It would be Jesus, rising from the grave, just, just as David now is, in a sense, having the second lease on life now that Saul was dead. And so David said to him, where have you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And then David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And, and so we read this earlier. You know, they, the people fled from the battle, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. And David asked him in verse 5, how do, you, how do you know this for sure? How do you know this? And the young man said, as I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed, the chariots were following after him, and, and we read this. He said, here I am, and, he, and Saul, verse 9, asked him to stand over him and kill him because if the Philistines had gotten a hold of Saul, he would have been like a trophy for them. And they would have tortured him, they would have mutilated him, they would have made sport of him. And in fact, that's what they did after he died. They pinned his body up on the wall in Beth Shan, which is also called... Um, I forgot what it was called, but it's okay. <laughs> it was called Beshan. <laughs> and so, verse 10, it says, So he stood over him and killed him, because he knew as he looked at Saul, you know, because it told us in the last chapter of 1 Samuel that Saul fell on his spear, because, or fell on his sword, because he didn't want to be humiliated by the Philistines. And he was already hit with a couple of arrows. He knew he was going to die. So he's like, I'm just going to take my own life. And, um, and so this Amalekite evidently comes afterwards. He sees him like that, and so he does. He follows through with it. He kills him. He takes off his crown on his head and his bracelet on his arm, and he brought them 
to David. Now let me ask you a question. Do you see anything different with this man's account from that of 1 Samuel 31, verses 1 through 6? We're going to look at it, because there are three accounts of this, of Saul's death. The first one is what we read last week in 1 Samuel 31, verses 1 through 6. The second account of this death of Saul, or of Saul and his sons is what we just read here, the Amalekite version of it. We also see in 1 Chronicles chapter 10 the very same story that was told to us in 1 Samuel 31. So there seems to be a discrepancy here with what the Amalekite is saying. Let's read 1 Samuel 31, verse 1 through 6. Just turn back a page and let's just look at that and just be thinking about it, about what we just read concerning the Amalekite's version of the story. It says, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, Melchishua, Saul's sons. And the battle became fierce against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. And then Saul said to his armor-bearer, you remember this, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. And therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men died together that same day. Do you see a difference with what this man was saying? And there really isn't a discrepancy because you can really put the two events together. You remember when we read the Gospels, sometimes you'll read um, in in a parallel account maybe a a few details that are a little different than maybe one of the other parallel accounts. Like Matthew may cover uh, an event that happened and, and Mark will record the same event, but one will have some information a little bit more than the other one or vice versa. But when you put the two of them together, they fit seamlessly like a jigsaw puzzle. I believe this is one of those times. And there are people who disagree. They think that the, that the man is um, uh, lying and that he, he died for his lie. I think if, um, as we, we saw with the young man who was going to kill this Amalekite, I would imagine that as he pulled out his sword and began to come near him, if it wasn't the truth, I would just fess up to it right then and there. I'd just say, you know what, I didn't do it. I just wanted to gain um, an audience with you, King David. I just wanted to be uh, kind of ingratiated to you. But he didn't do that. And so the the man died. So there are two ways that we can reconcile these three accounts. And 1 Chronicles chapter 10 basically tells us exactly what 1 Samuel 31 tells us. So there's two ways we can reconcile this. Either the Malachite was fabricating the story to ingratiate himself or curry favor with David, Or the event here in 2 Samuel chapter 1 occurred after Saul fell on his sword. And if you put the two together, you can see how that can happen. His first, his armor, you know, Saul is hit with the arrows. He's going to die. He knows he's going to die. He tells his armor bearer, thrust me through. He won't do it. So Saul falls on the sword himself, and he's unconscious, at least for a moment. Or at least his armor bearer thinks he's dead, so he does the same thing. He dies. And then this Amalekite comes along 
and see Saul there still kind of alive but not quite dead yet. And so he finishes it based on Saul's, you know, desire. So that could have very well happened too. But either way, it doesn't really matter. There's really no discrepancy there, I don't believe, if you put the two of those things together. What I find interesting about this is that Saul failed to kill the Amalekites. You remember in chapter 15? The one thing that God wanted Saul to do was to obey him. And he told him in in 1 Samuel 15, I want you to wipe out all the Amalekites because of what they did when the children of Israel came out out of Egypt and when they were on their way to the promised land. Because of what they did to them, I want you to wipe them all out. And remember, Saul did not do it. He saved Agag. He saved the best of all the things. He didn't do a full end of it. And it's interesting how now an Amalekite is the one putting him to death. It's kind of like uh, uh, justice, I guess. It's just kind of ironic that that would come out that way. And, And little did the Amalekite know that as he is talking to David, he thought David would be really excited about hearing that his arch enemy, which as far as David was concerned, Saul wasn't an enemy to him, but David was an enemy to Saul. David respected Saul, even though he was hunted by him. David had a whole different heart about him. He respected the office because God had anointed him through Samuel. And he's like, I'm not going to have anything to do with this man. I'm not going to harm him. He respected God and God's choice and putting him there and allowing him to be there. David, and I love this about him, it just shows you the character of the man. He wasn't going to have anything to do with Saul's death. And as you read through what we've just read through and what we're going to read through tonight, you'll realize that David had literally his hands were completely clean of putting Saul to death. He had nothing at whatsoever to do about it. Remember, he had a couple of opportunities to do it prior, but he did not do it. He even forbid his men to do it. In fact, he wouldn't even put his hand on the Lord's anointed. And he said this. He made this proclamation a number of times in 1 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 6. Also in verse 10, in 1 Samuel chapter 26, verses 9 through 11, and also in verse 16 and 23 of that 26th chapter, he said the same thing. I am not going to put my hand against the Lord's anointed. And unfortunately, this man's words would bring out his, his own demise. But 1 Chronicles chapter 10, in the last two verses, tells us that ultimately God was responsible for Saul's death. Even though the Amalekite, God, it was God who did that. Let me read it to you. It's 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 13 and 14. It says, Saul died and for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord. Notice, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, that was concerning the, the, the situation with the Amalekites in chapter 15. But he did not inquire, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance, which was um, a a heresy, right? He wasn't supposed to do that. But in verse 14 it says, But he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he killed him. God. Yes. (laughs) God killed him. That's never an easy thing to hear. But God allowed that to happen. He allowed it to happen and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Now look at verse 11 in our text tonight. It says, Therefore David took hold of his own clothes 
And as the custom was, he would tear them. And, and, and remember, as this Amalekite is coming to him, this is the first time he's hearing of this. They, again, they didn't have cell phones. He had waited there three days. The battle had been done at least a day or so, maybe two days, maybe three days. And now he's just getting word of it for the first time. And he's hearing it from a so-called eyewitness. And so David is distraught. He tears his clothes and remember, he and his men have been running around to Israel, trying to escape this madman. And now they've been liberated and vindicated by God, but still they had the heart to mourn instead of rejoice and have a party. <laughs> David, again, David never looked at Saul as an enemy, but Saul looked at David as an enemy. And David mourned for Saul and certainly Jonathan, but I wonder if his men felt the same way. You know, I can understand David's heart, but think of his men around him. They didn't have the same feelings and the same heart as David did. They wanted to put an end to it at the, in, the, uh, in the cave at En Gedi, remember. They were ready to take care of business for David. He didn't even have to do anything. And so I wonder now, you know, that they, they tear their clothes in like manner as their leader does. And I just think of the, the, the wonderful camaraderie and, that David had with these men and the way they looked up to him. You know, and what an effect one person can have on a group of people. You know, a man of integrity. Certainly David had his moments, his failings, but overall, the men admired him. He was a great military leader. He was a great musician. He had a, a good head about him, with the exception of a couple moments. We looked at that in the last few chapters of the previous book. But they admired David, and I wonder if they felt the same thing. I really do. But they did it anyway. They mourned. David's son, Solomon, would later write in Proverbs 24, verse 17. It says this, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. And that's a really wonderful thing for us as Christians to consider. You know, because God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He never does. He's, it's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so when we joyfully rejoice over someone that has died, we've got to be really careful. As Christians, we ought to be careful not to rejoice. And yet we have done that. I know that I have done that. You know, when you hear of a terrorist, a world-renowned terrorist, you know, there, there's a part of me that rejoiced inside. And then, you know, um, so we have to be really careful of that. But even your people around you, you know, when, they, when you see them falling or... Maybe they're not your friend anymore. Maybe there was some kind of falling out between you and somebody else, and you see them go through some calamity, and deep inside you're kind of like, oh, they got theirs. You know, we've got to be really careful of our hearts in that, because that really doesn't honor the Lord, does it? And I've, I've been guilty of it, honestly. And so um, I'll point the finger right back at me uh, as I read that, and that, that hurts, but it's something that we really need to consider you know, and how do you respond when your enemy or somebody hurts you, you know, and then you hear about justice or something happening to them, and in your mind you're thinking, ah, God got them, you know, or he brought them to justice, you know, it's easy for us to do that, but 
Again, we have to be careful. Proverbs 17, verse 5 says, He who mocks the poor reproaches his maker, and he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. So it's something that we really ought to be concerned about. Obadiah, in Obadiah chapter 1, verse 12, God, through the prophet, is speaking to Edom and um, the, the, the country of Edom and its people. And it says, But you should have not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. And so the Lord got on their case for rejoicing when, when, the, in the, when the children of Israel were taken captive. And he, um, so God takes that very seriously, and so ought we as well. So back in our text, notice in verse 12, it says that they mourned and they wept. You know, you think that those two terms are, are synonymous, but, you know, when you mourn, you know, you can weep, and then you can mourn, you know, and it takes time. And, I, you know, just hearing David's heart in all of this, you know, David respected Saul, and he loved his son, Jonathan. They were like two peas in a pod. They were just so close together. And if you've ever lost a best friend like that, you know the pain and the anguish that that can be. And um, so they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Notice, this is the amazing part of David's character that I really love. Because later in his reign, this kind of heart got him almost in a lot of trouble with his own people. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 18. 2 Samuel chapter 18. And this obviously is going forward in time when Absalom is killed. But as we read this, you, you see David's heart again on display, and it's, it's a really good heart. I mean, Absalom was not only his son, but he was also his foe because he was trying to overthrow his father. But notice what happened. It says that then the king, and this is in verse 33, that the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept uh, when he heard about uh, Absalom's death. And as he went, he said thus, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Now this is the guy, the son, who was going to overthrow him, but notice David's heart. Oh, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son. And Joab was told, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And so the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. Because he'd driven David out of Jerusalem. All the, the royal family is moving out of Jerusalem. They cross the Kidron Valley up the Mount of Olives, and they're going to be moving away. And so when Absalom was killed, you know, everyone is rejoicing. Now we can go back home again. <laughs> and so Joab says, the king is grieved for his son, and the people stole back into the city that day as people who are ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. But the king recovered his face, and the king cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom. So he's really grieving for his son. And then Joab came to him and is angry with him, and he came into the king, into the house to the king, and he said, Today you have disgraced all your servants who today have saved your life, David. The lives of your sons, your daughters, the lives of your wives, the lives of your concubines, and that you loved your enemies and hate your friends. 
your son is trying to overthrow you now that he's dead you can go back into your kingdom you're, you're, you're mourning over him and you're forgetting about the, the, the joy for the rest of the people. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, then it would have pleased you well. Now therefore arise and go and speak comfort to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. So notice that they not only weep for Saul and Jonathan, but also for the people of God. Because the people of God were defeated by their perennial enemy, the Philistines. And the Philistines were known for their chariots, their iron chariots. And as they were battling Israel up in Aphek in the Valley of Jezreel, which you and I would know as the Valley of Armageddon, we visit that place when we go to Israel. It's a very flat place, perfect place for a battle. When you see it, you're going to be like, wow, it really is breathtaking. But they're in that, and they have iron chariots. And when, you're on, when you have an iron chariot on a flat surface, you've got the clear advantage over everybody. And they really knew how to make iron, the Philistines. The Jews hadn't really perfected it. They really didn't know it. But the Philistines really knew what they were doing and all of that. And so they're, they're mourning because of all of this. And it was a national tragedy. Remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 4 when the Israelites were going into battle. And what do they do? They get the idea that, hey, let's, let's go get the Ark of the, uh, of the Covenant Let's go to Shiloh and get the Ark of the Covenant and take that into battle with us. And then it will work for us. Like it's going to be our, our lucky charm. It's going to be our rabbit's foot in our pocket that we can rub, hoping that maybe God will deliver. And what happens? The army loses and the Ark gets stolen by the Philistines. Same kind of moment right here. This is a national tragedy for them. And David was very selfless here because he wasn't just rejoicing. He wasn't rejoicing at all over Saul's death. What were they rejoicing or what were they mourning over? Saul and Jonathan and for the people of the Lord, the people of Israel. Why would he do that? Because he was a man after God's own heart. And what is important to God but his people Paul, in the book of Acts, wrote this as he was preaching at the synagogue at Antioch. He was basically giving them a Bible study. And he said, when God had removed Saul, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. See, David really cared about people. Here he is on the day of, of his deliverance, and instead of having a big party, he's mourning He's mourning over these two men, and he's mourning over now his, the people of Israel have lost their first king. I mean, this is a big deal nationally. And David respected that authority. He respected that authority. And see, that is a hallmark of a great leader. And as a shepherd, which David was, he was very sensitive to this predicament. In Psalm 76, in verse 68, it says, uh, and this is a psalm of Asaph, and, and, and God is speaking here. He says, but I chose the tribe of Judah, 
Mount Zion, which he loved, and he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth that, has, that he has established forever. He also chose David, his servant, notice, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes that had young, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. And so he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart, and he guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. And this is the heart of David. That's why he's mourning for the people, because they are like sheep without a shepherd. They are like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus, if you remember, in Matthew 9, it says that Jesus went all around the city. This is in chapter 9, verse 35. He went all around the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But notice what it says in verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep, not having a shepherd. And so the very heart of Jesus is the very heart of David. He looked around at Israel and thought to himself, you know what, this is not a day for rejoicing, guys. Our country just lost their first king. And all the people of Israel are like sheep without a shepherd. And David as a shepherd, it just, it's like it just kicked into him. And you know, I think about us, you know, in the country we live in. You know, we live in a country, there's a lot of people out there, they're like sheep without a shepherd, right? The world doesn't care for them. The world will abuse them and use them up and spit them out. The enemy will use them, abuse them. But Jesus wants to touch their lives and make them whole and heal them and bless them. And see, that's what we ought to be. We are shepherds in a sense. Ask God to give you that shepherd's heart to be going after people and to see them in their distress and and be moved with compassion for those around you. Amen? Because that's, that's, that's a good thing. That's the kind of heart we need. That's the kind of heart that I want. I want my heart to continually be going in that direction. So verse 13, it says, Then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he said, I'm the son of an alien, a Malachite. Now, the man was probably hoping for some kind of special privilege from David by saying that he was an alien, the son of, you know, I'm the son of an alien, an Amalekite. He was probably hoping for some special privileges. Because in Leviticus chapter 19, what does it say? Verse 33, it says, And if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And, um, but the, there's a problem, though, too. That God had pronounced judgment against the Amalekites. And Saul was supposed to have rid the land of the Amalekites. And so now, think of how thin ice this Amalekite is standing before David, (laughs) having told him that he just killed the Lord's anointed. And yet the guy, because he didn't know David's heart, he's thinking... He's going to make me second in command. He's going to give me something. I'm going to be a rich man now because I, you know. And he didn't understand David's heart. And he certainly didn't understand the scriptures. Because in Deuteronomy 25, remember, God said to Moses, 
He says, remember, verse 17, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be, when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. So this man is an Amalekite. And he's thinking that he's going to receive kind of some kind of special treatment because he's an alien, but God had already pronounced judgment upon them. So he's in double jeopardy here as he stands before David. So David said to him, How was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? So, because the standard that David held to, he also held for those who would, be, who would put their hand against the Lord's anointed. David would not have any part of it. Verse 15, it says, Then David called to one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. And so David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And so we, we come to the end of this, this section here, and what really happens here from verses 17 through the end of the chapter is a lament or a elegy that David wrote. Remember, David was a skilled musician. He wrote, he was the, he wrote many of the psalms, more than the majority of the psalms he penned. And so now he writes this lament, and let's read it. It says, then David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. The song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. I wish we had the book of Jasher. Um, it hasn't been found. I don't know where it is. It's probably in the Dead Sea somewhere, covered over by a bunch of rocks. <laughs> Maybe somewhere in Qumran. They just haven't found it amongst the rubble and all the, you know, who knows where it is. But this song of the bow was written in the book of Jasher. And here it is. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. And you're going to see this refrain. You might want to underline it here in verse 19. How the mighty have fallen. And notice it says, the beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. Who's he really talking about? He's talking about Saul and Jonathan. They were the beautiful ones. And it says, tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Let the daughters of the Philistines, or lest the daughters, excuse me, of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Remember, these are Philistine cities, the, the, the city of Gath, the city of Ashkelon. They were prominent cities in the Philistine pentapolis, those five different Philistine cities. And as you know, it would be very common for when someone would die that the women would come out and they would um, dance and sing depending on, on the occasion. Sometimes they'd be professional mourners. They would actually mourn. And if it was a joyous thing, they would rejoice. And if you look back, the previous uh, book in chapter 31, verses 8 through 10, what does it say? You know, here, here David is saying... You know, don't tell it in Gath what happened here. Don't tell anybody in the streets of Ashkelon lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Well, they had already started to rejoice because it tells us in 1 Samuel 31, verse 8, it says, So it happened the next day 
And this is after the battle where, da- where uh, Goliath, or not Goliath, excuse me, Saul and his sons had died. When the Philistines came to strip the, strip the slain, that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboa. And notice, they cut off his head, and they stripped off his armor, and they sent word throughout the land of the Philistines. To do what? To proclaim it in the temples of their gods and among the people. And so David's song here is that they did exactly what he was hoping they wouldn't do. But he knew that they would, they would rejoice. And then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths, and they fastened his body to the wall at Bethshan, along with his sons. But notice verse 21 in our text tonight. It says, going on with this lament, he says, O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. What they would do in those days is they would have leather shields, and in order to keep that shield in proper working order, they would anoint it with oil to make the leather nice and supple and able to absorb arrows and things of that nature. And so it's, it's basically just saying, you know, he's, 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 Saul is cast down on Mount Gilboa, and, and David pronounces a curse upon the mountain for what has happened there. From the blood, verse 22, of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, The bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. In other words, these men died in battle. You know, Saul was very um, adept with the sword, and Jonathan was very adept with the bow. And they took down a lot of enemies before they were vanquished themselves. That's really what is meant there. It says, for the shield of the mighty... I'm sorry, uh, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. In other words, he he was in battle, and he, he... he filled his arrows with blood. And the same thing with Saul. The sword of Saul did not return empty. Verse 23, it says, Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, and they were stronger than lions. I find that interesting, don't you? That and it's a really admirable trait, really, of Jonathan, who really had a heart like David, that even though his father was mad and wanted to see David dead, and, and Jonathan was best friends with David, you know, that even at the very end, you know, here are these men fighting together, you know. It's a very touching heart of Jonathan, even though he knew his dad was wrong and he did many wrong things, and he knew ultimately that David would be king that he stuck by his dad. He was faith. What a faithful man. I mean, that, that, that's really hard to do when you know somebody is wrong and, they're, and, and they're, they're totally off the mark, and yet you stay with him to the very end. And Jonathan was one of those men. I believe Jonathan is in glory. He was a faithful man, even though his dad was a madman. And he goes on in verse 24, O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. No doubt all of the spoils of war that Saul had acquired through the the, the battles with the Philistines and others, as they would gather that booty from um, from those wars, he would clothe his wives and the women close to him. He would clothe them in the very best of things. And said, so he says, O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury. And again, here's the, uh, the refrain again, underline this. How the mighty have fallen 
in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. Verse 26, he, and from here to the end, it's very specific to Jonathan. And David, as his heart is breaking over Jonathan, he says, I am distressed for you, my brother. Jonathan, you have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women, that, that, that wonderful attraction of a, a man and a woman. And, and it wasn't meaning that Jonathan and David had something inordinate happening here. It was nothing like that, nothing perverse. It was just two men who really respected each other. They loved each other dearly. They would have taken a bullet for each other, or for a sword for that matter. You know, they would have taken, they would have gone to the battle with each other and saved each other's life if they had to. You know, that's how close they were. In the Song of Solomon, it says this in chapter 8, verse 6. It says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. And, and here's the verse. For love is as strong as death, and jealousy as cruel as the grave. Love is as strong as death. It's a very powerful emotion, and that's the kind of love that David and Jonathan had for each other. It's such great respect, these two men. They had, they were, they had the same heart. Do you have anybody like that in your life? Have you had anybody like that in your life? Hopefully your spouse. <laughs> if you're married tonight, you look at your spouse and say, you know, lady, you, know you, were, you were like that for me. You still are. That's the way it should be. But have you had guys, have you had a, a male friend or ladies, have you had a, a lady friend or a girlfriend who was like that? you just inseparable. Maybe when you were younger, in your teens, you had somebody you palled around with, and you just you had all the same interests, the same heart. You were like this. That was the kind of thing. And then finally it ends, and it says, How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. Again, that's the third time this has happened, this phrase, how the mighty have fallen. We saw it in verse 25, and we also saw it in verse 19. And this last phrase, the weapons of war have perished. This is really um, a metaphor for Saul and Jonathan. They were the weapons of war, and now they had perished. And you know what I love about this lament? Is the things that David didn't say. He could have written down all the things that Saul had done. He could have written down all the things that Saul had done, including his, his own uh, coming after David himself and, and what he put him through. He could have written all those things down in order and, and captured the whole thing in a song. But does that, does that sound like another chapter to you in the Bible? Hebrews chapter 11. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 11. You read that and you see some of the men and the women that are listed there the warriors and the great things, the great deeds of faith that they did. And you look at, and, and the Bible is very clear and open with us about the things that they did, the things that they did wrong, the things that they did right. But in Hebrews chapter 11, it doesn't mention their faults. It doesn't bring their sin into the equation. And here we see in this lament, David doesn't do the same. He does, he does the same thing. He doesn't bring their Saul's sin into account. He's like, I'm only going to extol the great things. He chose to do that. And in Christ, this is how the Lord sees us. 
He doesn't see us as these corrupt sinners. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll end with a couple of things here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, Paul says to the Corinthians, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, notice, fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And notice what he says in verse 11. And such were some of you. Such were some of you, and and I'm included in that number, unfortunately. (laughs) But shamefully, I'll admit it. But you were washed, notice. But you were cleansed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. I love that. David didn't mention any of those faults. And Jesus looks upon us that same way. Because of his sacrifice on the cross, he no longer sees us. He no longer sees us as these sinners that are on their way to hell. He sees us as children that he has purchased with his own blood. He sees us completely different because we are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. What, what would have been your response? What would have been the song you would have wrote if you were David? Would you have conspired and tried to see to it that Saul was killed so that you could become king? Finally, in Matthew, almost finally, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus speaking, what did he say? He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? To love your enemies. That's something that's very hard for us as believers. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? For don't even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what more? Uh, what do you do more than any others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you, you shall be perfect or mature, just as your Father in heaven is perfect or mature. Full grown in the faith. And that's hard to do, isn't it? And that's a real challenge for us today. Because we live in a world of hate. The Bible says that in the last days that the love of many will grow cold because the iniquity would, would abound so much. And we see it happening before our eyes. Iniquity is abounding. And, and, and the word that it uses there, the love of many growing cold, that's agape love. That's agape. That self-sacrificing love. Because iniquity shall abound, these things are going to um, suffer. Finally, we'll end with this. As we look at Saul, his reign coming to an end, and David's coming to fruition, 
In Psalm 75, this is a good one to write down in the margin. Verse 6, it says this, For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. And we see that very same thing happening in the life of Saul. He was, as, as Saul's reign was slowly declining, David's reign was slowly taking off. And it was just this convergent of, of ministries, or one's going down and one's going up. <laughs> And I love that. I love that about David. Let's seek to be like that. You know, what do you think about your enemies? David wept over them. And again, it's a hard thing to, a hard thing to do. And if you're like me, I, I need a new heart. I need a new heart in that regard. It's very easy to get angry today with things around us. But God calls us to a higher, a higher level, doesn't he? He raises the bar really high. So let's stand and let's ask him to do that. Father, as we consider, Lord, this passage this evening... And Lord, for all intents and purposes, as we look at David's situation, Lord, it'd be very easy for us to do the exact opposite, God. But we need a heart like that, Father, a heart that is after yours. Lord, to have the heart of a shepherd. Lord, to have a heart that is other-centered. And Lord, how I pray that you would work that into me, and I pray that you'd work that also into my brothers and sisters too, Father. For we are all in need of constant change. Lord, we cannot leave this building tonight the same as when we came in. Lord, may it not be so. May we leave here different than when we came in. And, and may we really take these things to heart, God. And not just think of it as a, a nice story. But Lord, there's practical things in here for us tonight. And Lord, help us to put those things deep in our heart, that they would work themselves out in the very natural, very tangible, very practical things in our life. And so, Lord, have your way with us. Continue to cleanse us and heal us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. And remember this... Um, this is in the bookstore. I would encourage you to get a copy and read it. It'll expand your heart and your mind, and it will challenge you. Amen.